Welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content, a podcast about what it's like to write for as little as two cents per word. I'm Alex. And I'm Elizabeth. This Verge article, it's actually from last month. It's about Amazon. And Amazon is not near the top of my content hierarchy of the companies that have really made this concept overpowering. But at the same time, you could make a very good argument that Amazon is, is instrumental to the rise of the content industry and the whole content, and I hate this word, ecosystem. If Microsoft or Netflix or Facebook is because, first of all, Amazon, if it, they... The Amazon cloud is everywhere. So even if you're somebody who is not a huge fan of Amazon, trying to get away from Amazon, not buy a lot of stuff there for either ethical, political reasons, Amazon Web Services is baked into almost, you almost certainly use something that uses AWS. So Reddit or any sort of website that has any sort of data storage that's remote, what we call in the cloud. Just to take a step back here, this permeates my work life, my personal life too, this whole idea of cloud. But the idea of the cloud is that instead of the computing or the storage or the networking happening on your own device that you own, that's local to your home or wherever, this is all happening somewhere else. So you take a file that like Dropbox is, is maybe not the most popular service anymore, but it's an archetypal example of a very straightforward cloud service. You put a document into a folder. That folder is actually living somewhere on an Amazon server. And so no matter where you log in, you log in from your laptop, you log into it from your phone. Doesn't matter where you are, what device you're on. As long as you have the same account, the same Dropbox account to use everywhere, you can access that same set of files. You can delete them. You can modify them. Those changes populate everywhere. So... Anyway, Amazon runs the biggest cloud, so it's basically impossible to escape them. So if there's like a backbone in the content skeleton, this is part of that. And the US at the university I work at too, like it, it's not just a, a products or services type. Mm -hmm. It's like the technology that underpins the, the institution yeah. that is giving education to people is dependent on AWS. Yeah, it's and AWS was really very early into this in, into the cloud space. I think it was it debuted in two thousand six. But like Netflix is a huge AWS customer, and like you said, in universities, it's anywhere you go, you basically can't escape it. And it only has it has very few rivals. It's really its only rivals are Microsoft and Google. Microsoft runs a cloud called Azure, and Google they've rebranded a couple of times. I, I don't even know what their current offering it's is called. Google Cloud. But, uh, but it was a Google Cloud platform and maybe they might have simplified it to Google Cloud. I'm not sure. But one of the ways that AWS intersects with the content, the concept of content is in video streaming. Like I said, just a few seconds ago, Netflix is a huge AWS customer. And of course you have Amazon Prime Video, which is in a way Netflix is competing with it, the, its own hosting provider, which is funny to me. I came across this, uh, this Verge article and it was talking about how Amazon had been trying to solve and this is the verges word quote one of streaming tv's biggest issues colon endless amounts of content can make it really difficult and that's been metallicized to pick something to watch so there used to be this this meme from a while ago it was like the first world problems meme it's, it's like a woman and she's like crying 
and people would put, <laughs> usually they put text like above and below. And one of the, one of the most memorable iterations of the name I saw was where at the beginning, at the top, it said delicious meal prepared. And then the second part says, I can't decide what to watch on Netflix. <laughs> No, I saw this in a TikTok the other day. One a, a very prominent TikTok creator said, if I prepare a snack and then I sit down and I have I don't have the perfect show to watch, that was a ruined snack. And it's no exaggeration to say that you could easily eat an entire meal That's like in the time take yeah. just trying to figure out how what to watch. And I think Netflix has a thing like now if you log into Netflix, like it has a, an option that says something like surprise me and so it's just screw it i have no idea just pick something for me to watch so it's it's so well so what amazon is proposing in this in this article is something like it's an IB, imdb branded app so just do a sidebar here amazon owns imdb you know what? i did not know that until right now so <laughs> which sucks because that's like my favorite app yeah so amazon is literally you cannot get away from them but it's so in in this app like you're watching and rating movies and it's like it, it's gamified it or gamified it so it's in that way it's trying to simplify like how you're going through this so you watch the irish or something and you say oh i like that and then it might come back with some other steering you to something else and i just got a force reload now the article has disappeared on me um, so i might have to this section as there. it happens as, as it, it happens. always happens but anyway, I think we touched upon this in, in the first episode or earlier in the episode where we said that Jeff Jarvis, it said the iPod had inaugurated the era of too much content. And so like with streaming, it's just you're sitting here for a long time and you're like, what do I watch? Is And then like Netflix, I know people have talked about for years, Netflix had all these analytics. You would watch, if somebody watched something for X number of seconds, how does that affect what gets recommended to them in the future? And so if you're trying to make sense of your Netflix recommendations, there's all kinds of black box metrics that Netflix is analyzing on the back end to try and figure out exactly what to recommend to you. But what I find fascinating about that is that despite all of this advanced data science, it doesn't really make it any easier at all to decide what to watch. So somebody is constantly nudging you saying, well, you liked this, or maybe you would like this as well. Once you open up that grid again, it's in a way, it's like being back on cable TV and going through the all the oh. channels. So, you know, what, it, and in a way it's even worse than that because at least in cable TV, there was some, or what some people call cable and broadcast linear TV, because if you miss the moment that it's on, you missed it because it's not on demand. It's happening. It's right. going in a line from one program to the next. MASH ends and Cheers is on next. I, don't, I didn't even look up to see if they were on the same network. But anyway, you get the, we can pretend that maybe in some alternate universe they were, if they weren't already. But I'd love um, to tell you, but I really don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. And maybe that reference is way out of date. But yeah, it's... So it doesn't make it any easier in a way. So it's, there's, I don't know, there's this huge anxiety. There's just, there's too much stuff. And it's, you can watch something and then it's less just a tip of the iceberg. And there might be all this other stuff to watch. And I think, at least for me, what happens is that I fall back. I'm just watching the stuff that I already know. Yeah. Or that something that is maybe by the same director or has the same star. And it actually makes it harder for me to branch out, even though in theory, it should make branching out the easiest thing ever. No, I completely agree with you. It also does that to me. Like I, I have watched the same two comedy specials for ages and ages because I cannot make the decision. What is, it's some kind of decision anxiety, right? My partner and I were trying to watch Star Trek, but apparently they've taken Star Trek off of literally every service, except for the one that we don't have. 
And so now we're watching the Orville because it's like Star Trek. Ah, uh, yeah. And it, the Orville. so it, it's, it makes it harder to watch what you want to watch. Yeah. It's, and in this way, so I think obviously volume is a huge factor here. So volume in terms, not only of the amount of things that are being put a tap away or click away. And then also at the same time, you have these companies that just like, like Amazon and Netflix just spend incredible amounts of money to the point of, in Netflix's case, basically of almost putting their business at risk, the amount of money they burn on original content, what they yeah. call original content. And, uh, and as I alluded to another time, it, did, it wasn't, it didn't used to be satire practice to call videos content, like you used to call them programs or, or shows, shows something yeah. more specific, but then by calling them content, I think the video streaming companies have adopted the same mindset that like it was laid out in that Bill Gates essay, which is really central to the, the ideology of how content mills operate, which is just, you got to get something out there you, and you got to just relentlessly keep getting it out there every single day or else you'll just get buried by other people who are producing more than you. And, and at this point, it's almost like the actual consumption of it ends up almost not even mattering. It's just, if I can just get all of this out here and say, my service has all of these things on it. Somehow it takes away some of the meaning for me. Yeah. It takes away some of the, because I know that there is great original content. There is stuff out there that I probably would really love, but because it's so hard to find something to watch, first of all, and because it has become, like you're saying, we're using the word content to describe these things. It takes the meaning out of art. It's supposed to be artistic yeah. video and shows and writing. And it's all supposed to be artistic, but we have taken the art out of it when we call it content. Yeah, uh, I think about Netflix, like Netflix recently lost like a huge portion of their overall market cap because they registered a subscriber loss. I think the first time in, it was like over a decade and they've been spending all their money on just making more and more of this, what they call original content. And I think for years, like actually the most popular stuff on Netflix wasn't anything that they had created in house. It was like what they call, I think, I want to say they call them catalog titles, things that they had licensed from other intellectual property holders. So like the office was a big one. So for years, Netflix had the office and. It made know, huge news when it was yeah, not on the, when it, when it not moved, on Netflix anymore. Yeah. When it moved away from Netflix, that was a big deal. And the same goes for friends. And so I think about that too, because it's like, uh, some people were like, I'd watch, I've watched the office two or three times all the way through. And I'm like, if you're doing that on Netflix, are you really watching anything else? Like how much of, because the amount of time you would need to oh, yeah. able watch throughs. Uh, and I know if that's a word, but of the office, that's, that's a pretty big commitment. But right. at the same and you're time, not watching any of their original content while yeah. you're watching the office all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And it's but in a way I can understand why people do that because it's like, first of all, like we said, it's something they're familiar with. And then also you're just going in a linear progression, even though you are on like an on-demand service. So you're just watching episode one, then you're watching episode two, then you're watching episode three. And there's a lot of it going back to this Verge article, the way they described it, that the word choice of calling it endless streaming content. Streaming is really the epitome of content is both in terms of both form and distribution, because you're getting something that is 
distributed over the internet at, at no cost, what they call no, no marginal cost. So you can easily scale up to new customers. You can reach millions of subscribers and you don't have to, you don't have to physically send anybody anything or so acquiring and distributing to a customer is relatively straightforward. And at the same time, you can just keep, you can keep adding more of that very easily because there is no, you're not having to make any sort of physical discs or tapes. And, uh, and, and the other thing about streaming is that it's like content that's written for websites. It's all algorithmic selection is so important to it. So when you search for something on Google, the things that are getting returned are the things that Google's algorithms think are the most relevant or have some sort of meaning. And of course, Google's algorithm is proprietary, but then with streaming content, the algorithms are also central to that. So what gets recommended to you? What do you actually watch something? How do those recommendations change? The other thing that the streaming has in common with content that's written for like written content for websites is that the people who create it and the people who consume it don't have a lot of agency over it, weirdly. Because the, like the streaming provider can pull something from their site at any time. Yeah. So if something expires from streaming, you've lost it for good, basically. So there's no like backup hard copy. If you were watching, well, like we just said, if you're watching, you were depending on Netflix to watch The Office, and now The Office is on Peacock, and you don't want to pay extra for Peacock, then that's it. Your only recourse is to you could either watch clips from YouTube or you could buy the actual physical disc. I think a lot of people would scoff at that because who watches DVDs or Blu-rays anymore? But, but at the same time, I actually, one time I did figure out the economics on this. So if you were to buy the office, like the entire series on Blu-ray, it's like $70. That's equivalent to about, I want to say at current prices, like it's six about, months. it's like, it's about three and a half months of Netflix premium. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So if you get like the 4K, four screen Netflix subscription, it's like $20 a month. Oh my God. And if you were just using that to watch The Office, in a way you might actually. There's a better better use of your money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is to not to get like really into the weeds, but these, there's also what's called like a bit rate, which like, is like how much data is being transferred by the video stream. I think the average bit rate on Netflix is it's usually 16 megabits or lower. And then on a Blu-ray disc, it's usually like. 30 or 40. So it's almost double in terms of the amount of data that's actually being transferred and shown on the video. There is a quality loss too, but you're not to get too far off track on, on, on that. But I think with the sort of endless content, as somebody who helped perpetuate this by creating so many articles, so many infographics, so many ebooks and white papers, I just, one thing I really thought about was, was I making someone else's decision anxiety worse too? Was I Somebody who was trying to decide what is the best public cloud service for now, Alex. Application. We're yeah. going to have some shared guilt about this now <laughs> because I hadn't thought about that before, but now I am. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know. If you go to Google and you like best public cloud, first of all, you get four ads right at the top, and then there's like a sick item list from an IT Pro portal, and you get it's sort of your typical like. SEO article, like you've got reasons to buy like all these pluses, and then you've got like a subhead for each one. But... A plug at the end for, hey, maybe if you are in the mood to buy some public cloud, maybe you could try this one. Because yeah. hint, hint, that article was paid for by that company. Yeah. And then you've got the, the token set of tags at the bottom and then the tabula fee. 
I think some people call that the chum bucket of the internet. And it's like <laughs> after the article is over, you get to see like critics for speechless or oh, uh, yeah. something like that. So, Those advertisements. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's funny. I So t- tell me more about this IMDB gaming. So I'm trying to wrap my head around it. It's an app and it's branded IMDB, but it's not IMDB. It is an IMDb branded. This doesn't use the same like interface as the actual IMDB app. And then you play games, and yeah, so the app is actually called IMDB What to Watch Subtitle Discovered Together. Same. So it's it's exclusively available to Fire TV customers, and, ah. and so it's it has some pretty interesting metaphors, or I don't know if you call them metaphors, but so there's something called Quick Draw where you go through these virtual playing cards and it shuffles through movie and series options. And then you can pick from the deck. But so it's like you're literally just picking at random. And then you also have these sort of challenges where you get like badges if you can watch all of the movies in the IMDb top 250 list. And so there's a completionist element to it as well. So there's that. And then you have something else called this or that where you, you answer like a series of questions and it tries to find like the perfect movie or series for your mood. Just you're telling it what you want. It's just guessing. In a way, it's, I just thought of this, but getting a good Google search now is almost like a game in its own because it's, it, you have to, you often have to do odd combinations of words or you have to do site specific searches because you Google itself algorithm has changed a lot over time and it doesn't always give you exactly what you mean because it might search for keywords that are related to but are not exactly what you typed in so recently i tried to find what was the biggest the biggest margin of defeat for a a one seed in the ncaa men's basketball tournament it's like if i search biggest margin of defeat for a one seed so you would think that would be a pretty easy like a good but then for google yeah the very first result is, has a number 16 seed ever beaten a one seed, yeah. which is not really, not really even close. I might've actually had to go to Reddit. I think I, I, did, I restricted my search to Reddit. Gross. And somebody on Reddit had a spreadsheet of all of the losses by number one seeds in NCAA tournament history, when they happened and by how many points. That's incredible. I, but the the important thing to point out here is that Somebody who made like this huge spreadsheet, that type of asset would never, ever rank as a good piece of content. You would, in fact, what we see instead is the, this question has a 16 seed of one. So like they've often, basically Google has almost entirely ignored the word margin. And the only times that they, some, so some of these articles are like, well, this one seed beat the 16 seed by one point. And that's how, and then that's ranking for this, I guess, the margin of defeat phrase or right. keyword. But other than that, it's, it's just, it's a, the whole first page is just absolutely nothing to do with the question. I think what we're getting at here is maybe a larger conversation about algorithms. You said that earlier that Google's algorithm is proprietary, which basically means that we have no idea and we can just yeah, like, around uh, and write content forever. And yeah, the NCL industry, like how it works, how do you run an article that ranks highly in Google? Basically all of that is reverse engineered. So it's just, let's look at the page one. What do these have in common? And that's not to diminish like the hard work that goes into being an SEO expert, but we don't actually, and when I say we, people who don't work at Google or know somebody who works there, we don't actually know 
exactly what it's ranking for or how. So we're reliant on sort of these SEO, this SEO industry to do that for us. And then so if you make your title like history of number one seed versus 16 seed, that might rank pretty highly, even if the query is not exactly asking about that history or it's just asking for something very specific. With this Amazon gamification, as they called it, it's, it, it, yeah, the fact that they made it where you can play it like you're choosing cards out of a deck or you're going through a quiz, it's, it's almost like watching content on these video streams, but it's almost not fun anymore. And so you have to make it, you have to somehow revitalize it. Oh, and absolutely. It, yeah. Because yeah, it's like, it's, and the same goes really for Google. If I'm searching for something, a lot of times it's, I don't know, it's not like I'm going to en enjoy what I read necessarily. It's just like I want some kind of answer and it's not really even good at that anymore. And so like maybe there's something in common between like how Google's quality is not pretty good. And then at the same time, watching a video on Netflix or Amazon it is almost a chore unless you know exactly, exactly. what you yep. want going in. Yep. So if you don't know what exactly what you want going in, you basically just get bombarded by what, you know, and here I go again with these giving inanimate agency what the site thinks you want. And then, so, yeah. I'll talk about that all day because yeah. as I am an avid consumer of TikTok and just in general, the number of people who now, as you say, gives the algorithm agency I'm watching TikToks all day about, oh, I can't believe how the algorithm screwed me like that. I can't believe the algorithm is putting me into this section of TikTok, the algorithm, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's really weird hearing non-content folks like us, right? Like it's weird hearing non-industry people talk about stuff like that. And yeah. it, I don't know if it's, I don't know, part of this makes me want to talk about how maybe it's got to do with my personal attention span because I definitely can't watch a Netflix movie that I don't like, but I'll watch a 15 second TikTok that I don't care about because it's 15 seconds of my life. And then the algorithm, then here we go. The algorithm chooses to show me other things that were like that. Yeah. Thing. Anyway, yeah. but maybe that's neither here nor there, but the yeah. point about algorithms being, being given agency Google as a company or as a, not a company. Yeah. Concept as a, an <laughs> entity. Yeah. I think the right word is maybe Google as an agent. Yeah. Yeah. And because there, there, there definitely is like a, a sense of passivity that's built into the notion of content because there is and there isn't because well, on the one hand, you have a very active portrayal in terms of like content creators. So people who have this agency over what they're making, they can make anything, they can put it anywhere. Even Bill Gates said in his essay that the great thing about the internet is anybody can publish anything anywhere. The reality is a little more stark. It's, it's dominated by just like your large companies and by content mills, people who just can relentlessly at all hours, you keep posting the things like what time is the Super Bowl is like the cliche one. That's like the archetypal SEO joke is like the day of the Super Bowl. Your site is just a bunch of what time is the Super Bowl and stuff like that. But then there's other things like some event might've recently just happened and it could be like literally within 20 minutes, there'll be some article, the top 20 things to know about the Supreme Court decision about X. A lot of these things have a common format. The top takeaways are, and then there's like a, a little list and there's, and the great thing about the Supreme Court decision is, and then you get the phrase, the Supreme Court decision is, which is probably itself a keyword of some type. So you get all of that. 
And uh, you can tell that you've been doing this for a while though, because you can pick out the keywords out yeah. of the phrases. Yeah, because like it's or another another one that always shows up a lot is like such and such is defined as Oh my god. And that is something that everybody says organically and it's very bad writing to boot. But some yeah. of Google thinks this is great. And I just, I don't know, I just can't get it. I can't let that one go. And because it's, there is definitely a template like for writing about such things. Like you want to have an opening paragraph that is under a certain number of characters. And ideally we'll say something like the X is defined as, and then like Y, Y, Z, A. And then, yeah, it's, but it's. And it's with, many keywords you can step into that first paragraph. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's so, so it's like, even though you're the content creator and you're still captive to that, and then it's even worse if you're not a content creator, if you're like a content consumer, how do you even know what to watch or what to read or what to listen to? And in some ways, I don't know, we, there's this ideology that, well, the best stuff wins out and it's like, just gets up there and people seek it out for that. And I think that's a very niche thing. Some people do know exactly what they want or from personal experience, or, or they're just like a connoisseur who's independently researched all this and they know what they want but then for everybody else is probably just going to consume what is put in front of them and yeah there is an article about this that's about i think it's called how much of the internet is fake and it's and that's worth the deep dive at some point but uh, just like how much of like the algorithms the who is actually reading this how is it getting to the top of these rankings are our bots involved and so on and it's it's pretty stark because you get the sense the internet is machine created content for machines and uh, a lot of you read articles a lot of times it's ai is getting better and better at like writing articles and and then it's the articles are talking about easier things like a summary of basketball game player a scored x number of points and and his team Y won by X number of points. So that's the type of writing that AI is pretty good at. But then one of the ideas of SEO or creating content, and this applies both to written content and to video, is it like, is there some kind of formula I can follow? Is there, so if I'm writing like an SEO piece, here's the outline. I need my thing at the top, like my snippet to be under, I'm just throwing out a number here. Here to be under 50 words, I need to be X number of characters. And then I need the whole article to be X number of words. And it needs to use all these keywords, Y and Z number of times. And with the URLs. Yeah, with the URLs. And then you want to make sure that each link opens in a separate window and so on. So the person doesn't click it and leave the article and not come back. <laughs> so, right. And then, but then, and then with video, it's, there's a lot made of Netflix, how they, how they, like when they created, I think it was House of Cards and like how they structured it so that people wouldn't pause it or abandon it in the middle of the episode. So the plot pacing, everything was based on what they had seen, other data. And, but then of course now House of Cards is completely forgotten. It's like, really, what's that? It may right. as well not, it may as well not even exist. It's, I see what you are yeah. saying. Like one of my favorite Netflix original series was the first two seasons of Hemlock Grove. Oh, I've seen that one. And it was great. But again, you haven't seen it. Nobody has seen it. <laughs> the The woman who played Jean Grey in the X-Men movies was like the main character. <laughs> it's, it goes back to this idea of content as filler. It's being created just really to put more stuff on the platform and then... It just disappears. And like I said earlier, at that point, where is the art? Where is the meaning in it? What are we actually getting out of consuming this content? We are consuming yes. content. We are not becoming more enlightened. We might be learning new things, but again, yeah, no, think, we might forget it tomorrow. I think the purpose is really so that somebody somewhere can show in their pitch deck that they had X number of users on their site every month. 
and some VC will give them money. To, there was like a running joke. It's probably been seven or eight years ago about how everyone was pivoting to video. And, yep. and it's, it's just like the worst phrase I ever. I remember this. So this is all, this was like these sites that had all of this great writing and everything on them. They were all just like, all of a sudden you go to them and they were like nothing but videos. And I don't know. And there was a lot of skepticism and some of it felt like you were maybe, I don't know, like an ivory tower. Maybe you the quote unquote real people love watching video all the time, but then a lot of people were like, personally, if I want something explained, I don't want to sit through like a YouTube video that goes on for 20 minutes compared to some art. Reading this. Yeah. And really like those YouTube explainers where someone takes, they have a big long preface and they keep going through all this different stuff and they finally get to the point. That's actually a really good analog to how a lot of SEO content works and that it, yeah. It takes forever to get to the point. And sometimes it's just lots of keywords there for Google to pick up on and rank. And, and rank. Google's centrality to Silicon Valley, that the importance of that really can't be overstated because, but that pivot to video was very much a Silicon Valley thing. Facebook was such a huge player in it. And uh, you like, need that I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> and then later on, it was like revealed that most of Facebook's metrics for this were basically bogus. And that it was just something that Facebook was having anxiety about YouTube or I don't know if it's YouTube or Snapchat or any of the competitors who they had at the time were stealing user time from them. They you know, had this big pivot to video. And then a lot of the sites that did that, they ended up going bankrupt or they laid off writers and it didn't pay off for them. It did pay off for Facebook though, because they did have a pretty good stock price run up in that period. Recently they haven't been doing as well, but so much of the purpose of content is to drive this venture capital machine, both for media startups and for any sort of company that can say that it's using AI to write content or to produce content. And then of course, for any kind of company that is dabbling in streaming, like Apple has its own streaming service, Amazon, of course, Google's always had YouTube. Uh, yeah, content is just this word that I haven't really mentioned yet, like late capitalism. So it's just literally just trying to make as much money as possible. No regard for labor standards or, or art or anything like that. And yet reflected in like the, how content mills work and how video streaming works, because mm-hmm. in content mills, how labor conditions are not very good you're really working just yourself to the bone for pennies per word. Literally refer to the title of this podcast. Yeah. And literally like, like literally two cents. And it's, and then what are you getting for it? Probably complete anonymity. You're getting some money for it, of course. And some people might see it, but it, it's like, you're not writing something to sell in a, like a Pulitzer Prize. Your name's and not on it. Your name's not on it. And They're then definitely like, not going to thank you for it. Nobody's going to thank you for it. And in a way it has a lot in common with the graveyard of Netflix original content or all of the things that are like getting lost at sea and on and Amazon Prime videos to the extent that like Amazon has to rescue them by making you play a virtual card game. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, and that is a great segue or a, a great way to wrap that up, right? Yeah. Just who we yeah. Do. I think we yeah. could talk about late capitalism and hypercapitalism. Yeah, in an upcoming episode, we can definitely look at that because Thomas Piketty, he has this book called Capitalism and Ideology, and it's really hard to describe exactly the scope of this book because it's both a history book, it's an economics book, it's a sociology book. He comes at this idea of how different societies have, have justified inequality over time from so many different angles. It gives you this background on like how Haiti went from its colonial era to the modern era and how the indemnities paid to, or how France really is so responsible for Haiti's poverty because of all the the sort of, the way France tried to spite Haiti for ending slavery, basically. And then, but then at the same time, he talks about how, how billionaires are so delusional in their ideology about solving problems. 
So he talks about how a lot of the problems in the world have actually very straightforward solutions, but for the billionaire, they can't really abide those because it would mean a reduction in their relative power. And so instead they come up with just these incredibly, uh, just absurd solutions. So like he doesn't mention Elon Musk, like Hyperloop by name, all of that. That is a good example of real life where like, mm. at one point Elon Musk literally wanted to build a track parallel to the Chicago blue line between the loop and the airport that would, the lane would be as wide as one car. And you used to have a string of one car, single cars and going through there. And the number of people who could travel this thing in an hour would just be absolutely dwarfed by the number of people who could ride probably even in a single train car in the CTA. But anyway, it's, 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 so it's and, but so I think silly. the example he offered is from some novel where I want to say it was something like they were trying to solve a climate problem in China and the solution that came up with it, and the novel was meant to be like satirical is that they were going to cut off the tops of the Himalayas. So that like the moisture pattern changed or something. And so just to illustrate like how like these solutions are often just so um, far-fetched, but he talks about how yeah, this is all in the era of hyper-capitalism. And another thing he really gets at is that like how, even though we live in like the era of big data, and I'm not sure how he phrased it in French, but his translator, who's mm, very, that's very, the keyword. Uh, th- that's a big, that's a big one. And uh, he, uh, his translator talks about uh, the way he renders it. He's re- like how we're in this era of big data, but then we don't really know very much about the wealth or the actual, the assets of like the wealthiest people. So there could be a lot of wealth that is hidden somewhere that we don't know anything about. And this kind of translates to the content space too, because even though, we have so much available to us on demand. We don't know exactly how it's getting presented to us and that we don't know what to actually watch or consume. There is this black box that's still there that's locking any sort of transparency. But you know, he, he talks about how this is very central to the hypercapitalist era is this sort of contradiction of you have endless ways of collecting, analyzing and distributing information except about anything that would reveal how the wealthiest and most powerful entities in society actually operate. And I think in, in content, you do get some of that because you have all these analytics on how do you write the, this great article? How do you rank for this? But at the same time, these algorithms are proprietary and you don't have a lot of control over even what gets recommended to you. I mean, you think you do, like you click like on this and maybe you'll see something like it, but what gets surfaced in your feed or what in your search results, you're not completely in control there and you don't actually know why you're not in control. 